RadioInfluence.com. This is Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. A look inside the biggest and most controversial news stories you need to know now. One of the country's most relied upon law enforcement analysts, Vincent Hill. Hey, good evening and welcome to Beyond the Badge. Of course, I am Vincent Hill and it is good to be back. I got to tell you, of course, I was off the air last week. I had other obligations that kept me away. But of course, you know, this is my passion. You know, I miss you guys when I'm not here to tell you some stories from a police point of view here on Beyond the Badge. But last week I had other obligations last Friday and Saturday. I was out in Los Angeles taping an upcoming crime show for the Oxygen Channel, believe it or not, uh, about the Steve McNair case. Uh, The producers found me. They want to do this new crime show that's uh, premiering on Oxygen next year, and they wanted to spotlight the Steve McNair case. And of course, you know I've written two books about that case, Playbook to a Murder and Incomplete Pass, both available on Amazon. And last Monday, I was actually in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, unfortunately it rained because this was my first time to Savannah and I hear it's beautiful. I hear there's a lot to do there. So I drove down last Sunday in the rain. It rained all day Monday. Uh, but at any rate, I was there. I was taping, uh, another episode of for my man premiering on TV one in their next season. So that's actually my second episode that I've done with TV one, uh, for my man. I look forward to those airing this coming season in the fall, and I will definitely keep you updated on air dates. And I got to apologize ahead of time if I I sound a little tired. I had one heck of a a weekend. It was a a great weekend, uh, but then it ended up being a little crappy. Uh, I flew out to New York early Saturday morning, hung out in the city Saturday. On Sunday, I was actually in the studio at Fox in New York City on the show uh, America's uh, News Headquarters, Fox America's News Headquarters. It was a great segment uh, that we did. Uh, Prior to that, this last Tuesday, I was actually on Tucker Carlson on Fox, but I shot out of the studio here in Atlanta. So there's always a different type of vibe, different type of experience when you get to be in the studio with the anchor on live TV and millions of people watching. And it's funny, I got a text message for someone that says, hey, I was just at a gas station getting gas, and I looked up and I saw you on the TV. So you never really know who's watching and where they're watching, which is kind of cool experience, but there's nothing like being in the studio in New York City at Fox headquarters and being able to talk on live TV. And we talked about uh, the Justine Damon case which I also talked about on Tucker Carlson uh, this past Tuesday on Fox News. And a lot of you may be saying, who is Justine Damon? Because a lot of people have said that. Well, she is an unarmed white woman, yoga teacher, who was shot and killed in Minneapolis by a black or Somalian police officer. And I want to talk a lot about this case. And I want to talk about why. A lot of people don't know about this case. Um, but Saturday or Sunday, I was trying to get back from New York, back to Atlanta. My flight was at 8.40 p.m. 
I left Fox News at five. They had a limo take me to the airport. I'm thinking, great. I got plenty of time. I can sit here, grab something to eat, get a drink, relax. I actually had to read over some scripts for a radio ad that I was doing for Ackerman Security uh, the next day. So I did all that, and every 20 minutes or so, my phone would ping, and it was American Airlines. Your flight is now leaving at this time. It's now leaving at this time. And as you're looking around the airport in LaGuardia, LaGuardia, especially where I was sitting, in the C terminal, there are a lot of people that were just really frustrated. So I started talking to this couple. I'm like, hey, how long have you guys been waiting? Uh, we've been here six hours, and that's not including the two hours we set on the plane on the, the runway. I'm like, what the heck? You guys have been here for eight hours? So American kept changing flights, changing flights, saying it's departing later because of weather. But there was no weather. There was nothing in New York. There was nothing in Atlanta. But I guess there was some storm pattern somewhere that ended up grounding all these planes. So they finally say flight 1687 is now boarding. It's like 1045 at night. I'm like, great. I can finally get on this plane. Thankfully, I was blessed enough to be able to fly be flying first class. I'm like, hey, first on the plane, first out, plenty of leg room. I'm going to sleep. Be done and rested for the next day. Well, five minutes before we're supposed to board, flight's canceled. So it's 11.15, 11.30 at this point. And of course, I'm like, God dang it, what the heck? So I call American. They're like, yeah, we can get you out at 7 a.m. I'm like, great. But it gets you in Atlanta at 7 p.m. Like, what? Well, you fly from New York, sir, to Los Angeles, back to Atlanta. And I, I remember, and I was kind of cranky, asking the guy, sir, are you on drugs? Why would I fly from New York on the East Coast to Los Angeles on the West Coast for five hours just to fly back to the East Coast into Atlanta and waste 13 hours? I could drive there. So then I talked to another American airline uh, customer service rep at the counter. And she says, well, I can get you out at five in the morning. Great. We'll get you in Atlanta at 720. Cool. Let's book it. But it's out of Connecticut. You got to drive two hours. I'm like, lady, not only would I have to drive two hours after being up all day and sitting in this airport for several hours, then I would have to rent a car, which is going to be a hundred and something dollars because of the one-way rental. And then put gas in said car. How am I saving any money or any time by doing that? So finally, I just said, well, looks like I'm going to be here, stuck here till Tuesday. This is Sunday because all the other flights were coming out at like 5 p.m., 6 p.m. Monday afternoon. So I'm like, oh, God, I don't even want to fly at those times. So I ended up booking another flight on American to leave Tuesday morning at six o'clock. It would have got me into Atlanta right at eight. 820, everything would have been good. Of course, I would have had to pay for a hotel. So I'm trying to book the hotel, calling all around. There's nothing available. So by this time, it's like 1250 a.m. Monday morning. So I'm like, godly, I got to find a hotel. So I leave my terminal. I walk up to the uh, foyer area and there's two people sitting at the Delta counter. Now, remember, I'm flying American. So I go up to them. I say, listen, what is the closest hotel where I could probably walk to if I needed to? 
within less than a mile. They're like, oh, the Marriott, the Hampton, yada, yada, yada. Great. Which way do I go? They're like, but where are you trying to go? I said, right now I want to go lay down because American has screwed me. I'm stuck here for the night, at least for the night. Yeah, but where are you trying to go? I'm trying to go to Atlanta. Well, we have a flight boarding right now to Atlanta. It leaves in 15 minutes, but it's $350. I said, I'll take it because I'm going to spend that much just for a hotel for two nights. And they said, but the only problem is it's in Terminal D and it's already been delayed for three or four hours. So we can't call ahead to tell them to wait. So I said, well, where's Terminal D? Because we're in Terminal C. And she pointed and she said, it's about (laughs) a half mile that way. That's all she did. She pointed to her right and said, it's about a half mile that way. And I got to tell you, I was running through that airport like another black guy that ended up killing his wife. But I didn't kill my ex-wife. But I ended up getting to the plane, got on the plane. I was seated in like 28C. Uh, I gave the guy my boarding pass. He actually upgraded me to an exit row, which was great because at 6'1", your legs get kind of cramped in those little bitty seats. So I get on the plane. And I think that's the last thing I remember until I heard them say, welcome to Hartsfield International Airport. And by the time I got home Monday morning, it was about 4.15 a.m. And it was just like the longest travel day in the world. Now, I mentioned a guy running through the airport that killed his wife. If you haven't heard, I'm sure you have because the news loves this story they have for the last 20 plus years. O.J. Simpson was granted parole. He's set to be released in October. And there's a lot of buzz about this story because A, me personally, I think that whole robbery thing was a setup. And the only person not smart enough to realize that was O.J. Simpson, simply because of his egotistical, narcissistic ways. He just heard someone had his property. He didn't like that, even though it wasn't his property. He didn't like that, and he wasn't going to let that happen. So he went in that room, and he's like, don't let anybody leave. There you go. There's your kidnapping charge, OJ. So he serves nine years in prison. The victim of the case is like, hey, OJ's a great guy. He never pointed a gun at me, blah, blah, blah. So he's set to be released, I think, in October. I'd be interested to know if OJ can stay out of trouble because he beat a double murder charge, which I'm 100% convinced he's guilty of. Now, did Mark Furman use the N-word? Now, that's obvious. But on the same light, so did President Obama on a national radio show. But did he go around planting gloves? No, he didn't. So, yeah, Mark Furman used the N-word. But the DNA evidence, the footprints, everything about that case pointed to OJ. But he got off. So if I was Orenthal James Simpson, I would change my name to Willie Jackson. I would get in the white Bronco. I would do what my original plan was when he was running back in 94 in that pursuit or whatever you want to call it, an accompaniment. I would take my $10,000 cash that I had. I would cross the border into Mexico if it's not a violation of said parole. And then I would go underground. But I don't think OJ Simpson, the person he is, can do that because I'm sure right now there's some production company, there's some publishing company ready to offer OJ Simpson 
millions of dollars to tell his story about what it was like to be in prison for the last nine years. And then what's going to happen, even though he's 70 years old, his head is just going to it's going to blow up back to where it was. And I don't think OJ Ornithal James, who should change his name again to Willie Jackson and go underground. I don't think OJ Simpson has the ability to just lay low, move on with his life. If I spent nine years in prison and I had kids I really hadn't seen in nine years, didn't get a chance to interact with them, missed a whole lot of birthdays, missed a whole lot of stuff. If I was him, I would keep my nose clean, but I don't think he can do it. I think he's going to violate his parole maybe in less than two years. All right, I'm done with OJ. And I'm sure everyone else is probably tired of hearing about it. So I want to talk about Justine Damon. Um, you know, I was in the barbershop last Thursday getting my hair cut because I knew I was going to New York. Or it, actually, I think it was last Friday because uh, I always get my hair cut a day before I'm going to be on national TV. So I'm at the barbershop. I'm sitting there. I'm waiting for my turn with my barber. And the guy in the chair is just talking about how police mistreat black people and it's dating back to slavery and they only shoot black people and, you know, the whole narrative we've heard on mainstream media. And in the back of my mind, I'm sitting there laughing uh, because, A, I know statistically for every name he could give, I can give a white name of a person that was shot and killed by police. So he's talking, he's talking, he's talking, and finally the man in me gets the best of me. And I say, hey, so you ever heard of uh, Justine Damon? He's like, no, nah, who's that? I was like, well, she was shot and killed by police less than a week ago. Well, no, 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 I don't know. But I, I bet I bet the officer was saying he was in fear of his life. And I bet the, the black lady didn't do anything. I said, well, here's the problem. Here's why you probably haven't heard of her. A, the officer was Somalian, and in this country, people see him as black unless he starts speaking and you know his name because he has dark skin. And I said, and she was actually white and not even white American. She was Australian. She wasn't even from here. I said, but you haven't heard of this, but yet you're talking about Philando Castile, and she was shot in Minneapolis just like Philando Castile. So then he goes on to say, well, that's just because police are just ill-trained and they don't know what they're doing. And all they know how to do is kill people. So me, being the smart ass that I am, I said, well, how long were you a police officer? I, I was never a police officer, but I know that they don't know anything what they're doing. They're just untrained people who have guns. I was like, that's funny because I never shot and killed anyone. And I was a police officer for five years. and." No, I can't recall where I've ever killed someone. And I think my training actually helped save my life and helped me from taking a life based on my training. So how are you saying police are not trained? And I said, the bigger issue is that you believe this narrative that it only happens in the black community. I just told you of a white woman who was shot and killed by a black police officer, yet you had never heard of it. And I said, and for that white woman, Justine Damon, 
I can give you three other names of white women shot and killed by police in the U.S. this year that I guarantee never made it past the local five o'clock news. Of course, he really didn't have a comeback to that, but he said, but it still happens more in the black community than it does in the white community. And I'm like, okay, if that's your rationale, that's what you believe, sir. I'm going to let you believe that. But I assure you, if you do your research, just like you didn't know about Justine Damon, you probably didn't know about Dylan Taylor, who was shot three days after Michael Brown, an unarmed white kid. I guarantee you didn't know about it, but you knew about Philando Castile shot in Minnesota by police, but you didn't know about Justine Damon, who was shot in Minnesota by police. And you didn't even know that the same attorney that represented Philando Castile's family is representing her because you're so stuck on it only happens in the black community. So let's, for those that don't know about this case yet, Justine Damon, let's talk about it and let's break it down. So here's how it went down. Justine called 911. She called Minneapolis dispatch, Minneapolis police dispatch. She reported a possible sexual assault in the alley. She said she can hear a female. It sounded like she was having sex. Didn't sound like she was enjoying it. It sounded like she was yelling for help, but it was kind of muffled. So she called police. That's what you do. You hear someone possibly being raped. You want to call police. So a few minutes go by. I think eight minutes go by. She calls again. They're like, yep, we got police on the way. Uh, Yada, yada, yada. So she hangs up. So police arrive. They pull in the alley. No lights on. No headlights, of course. No blue lights and siren. You don't want to scare a potential rapist away. So if you're responding code three, blue lights and siren, guess what they're going to do? They're going to run. So they pull up. At some point, Justine Damon comes out to the car in her pajamas. A few seconds later, she's shot three times, center mass in the abdomen, and she dies. Now, here's where this case gets tricky, and I've been thinking about this since I've heard about it, trying to rationalize it and get it from a police officer point of view when some guy on Facebook uh, this weekend was hounding me who says he was a cop or is a cop. And I guess he saw me on Fox. And I simply said, based on what we know, I don't see where there was an imminent threat against his life. And this guy on Facebook was saying, well, your information's outdated because police train for ambushes. And it's not unrealistic that they could have been ambushed. I agree 100%. It is not unrealistic that these police could have been victims of an ambush. We've seen ambushes against police in the past. The most recent up in New York where the black female officer was shot and killed ambush style. So one of the things I did say on Fox was, I wonder was he unholstered when he pulled into the alley? Because not a lot of departments train for you to unholster your weapon in a seated position inside your vehicle. A, it's not a natural thing to do based on how you're trained to shoot while you're in the academy. It's not a natural thing to do. But more importantly, a lot of departments do not suggest or do not even allow you to shoot outside of your vehicle. So here's where this case gets tricky. The officer who did the shooting 
was the passenger side officer. He had been on the department for about two years. He shot over his partner because Justine was on the driver's side of the vehicle. So Officer Mohammed Noor fired three shots in the direction of his partner, hitting Justine Damon. Now, it gets even more interesting because they said right before she approached, they heard loud noises, which could have been gunshots. Well, here again is where I have problems. And I'm not, for that individual on Facebook, I'm not condemning the police. But here's where they have a problem. They say, okay, we heard these sounds that could have been fireworks or could have been gunshots. Well, one of the, I believe, sergeants keys up on the radio during the traffic after the shooting and says, yes, we heard those too. They're aerial fireworks. So the problem is that the police station is several miles from where this call took place. If I did my Google map right, it's about four miles. So if People inside of a police station four miles away can tell that sound is fireworks. What made Officer Noor believe that there was something right there that caused an imminent threat against his life? Because there's a difference between hearing aerial fireworks that can be heard for miles versus someone shooting a gun within three or four feet of you. There's a big difference in that sound. And more importantly, and here's what I stressed on Fox, even though this Todd, I can't remember his last name, had a problem with it. More importantly, based on what Minneapolis police right now have said, there is nothing in there was nothing in Justine Damon's actions which would have made them think she was approaching them in an aggressive manner. And I say that to say this. They're not saying she was running up to the car aggressively. They're not saying she had an object pointed at them, which appeared to be a gun. They're not saying any of those things that would make you think there's an imminent threat. So my thinking is it would be different if they said, yes, we heard these things that we believe were gunshots. And then we saw a figure running up to the car at a high rate of speed with their hands up, with something pointed that could be a gun. So now one of the attorneys is saying, well, her cell phone was in her hand. Yeah, great, because she called 911. So the problem I'm having, besides Officer Noor not talking to investigators, the problem I'm having as an officer, and I've talked to a few other officers who share the same view, where was the imminent threat against either his life or his partner's life. And in my opinion, he put his partner's life in danger himself by shooting across him because if his partner was ex- wasn't expecting those gunshots, let's say he ducked and he ducked into the path of those rounds, then his partner could be shot. His partner could possibly be, possibly be dead right now because of those actions. So I don't see anywhere where there was an imminent threat against the officer's life. More importantly, the logic I have, and again, when I was patrolling, if I had a 911 caller, I'd always ask dispatch, hey, does the caller want to talk to us? And most time, most of the time, they did want to talk to police. So they show up, 
right off the bat, they don't see anything. Now, the call was about a female being raped, and the call was from a female caller. Now, I know it's dark in an alley, but I think a blonde-headed white woman walking up to a vehicle is pretty, pretty identifiable. So, again, I don't understand what would lead Officer Knorr to believe there was an imminent threat against his life. Now, the department is being criticized that the dash cam wasn't on and the body cams weren't on. And to me, that could be a hundred reasons. You know, Minneapolis police have had body cams less than a year. It's still new to these officers. I'm not laying blame. I'm not making excuses, but it's still new to these officers. So when you're approaching a possible rape in progress in a dark alley, and you're thinking tactically, and you're thinking about how to position yourself and where a suspect may be hiding out, you got a million other things on your mind than activating a button on your body cam. That's just fact, right? Especially when you haven't had these body cams forever. The same with the dash cam. And a lot of people don't realize that certain dash cams are set up to activate when your blue lights and siren are on. So if they pulled into the alley without blue lights and siren and they pulled into the alley without their headlights on, really the dash cam wouldn't have caught anything anyway, besides maybe some audio. The same with the body cams. Most departments, and I believe Minneapolis is one of those, have the body cams set up to turn on at certain times, like once the door opens, once the blue lights go on, once the siren goes on. So if you don't have all those factors there, the door opening, the blue lights, the siren. I don't blame the officer for not having on body cam. Again, there's a million other things they're thinking about. There's a few other reasons why they wouldn't have been on. It would have been great to turn them on right after the shooting because they do capture the last 30 seconds, which would have gave us, well, it wouldn't have even given audio, but it would have at least gave the video perspective of Officer Noor and what he saw. So that piece of information, that key element is missing in this case. So it's going to be really, really difficult for investigators to determine what the officer saw as an imminent threat. And right now, again, he's refusing to speak to investigators. He's speaking through his attorney. But I think this case is going to boil down to what made that officer believe there was an imminent threat? And again, based on what they're saying right now, there's no indication that Justine Damon posed an imminent threat. Now, there's one thing to hear a noise, and there's one thing to use deadly force. I've heard plenty of noises in my career, even while on calls, even while on calls in dark alleys. And I didn't shoot anyone. I didn't think there was an imminent threat, and I definitely didn't shoot someone across my partner outside the window. Now, one of the things I said to this, Todd, is, yes, I've been the driver, and I've been the passenger in a police car, and I do know the dangers of someone approaching your patrol car. I totally get it. I'm not saying that it doesn't happen, but what I am saying is I do question rationally and logically question where was the imminent threat against Justine, against these officers by Justine Damon. 
Now, I'll say this for the record because I'm sure there's a lot of people right now getting upset. I'll say this for the record. I was not there. And I don't want to Monday morning quarterback it. But it's just something to think about rationally and logically. Where was the imminent threat? So as a result of this shooting, the chief, Janae Harto, has resigned after basically being told by the mayor she needs to resign and we need a fresh set of eyes on policing. Now, this is the same mayor that back in 2015, when Officer Noor joined the force, she praised him and was ecstatic that he was, you know, one of the only Somali officers and the only Somali officer in that precinct there in Minneapolis. But she wanted the chief to resign. But yet she, even though a lot of protesters, both black and white, have asked her to resign, her response was, I'm not stepping down. Well, my response to that is, I want to echo what the mayor said. And she said, there is no magic wand to policing. So if you say that, then why ask your police chief, who really had nothing to do with the shooting, who herself was not there, who herself cannot provide perspective. Why did you make her resign or fire her, but yet you don't want to resign yourself, even though there's protest and people showing up to your office demanding your resignation? To me, I think that's hypocritical. And especially when you add the element that you've said, there's no magic wand to policing. Let's face it. Policing is the hardest job in the world, there is no other job that gives you three options in just a few seconds. The first option, take a life. The second option, do nothing and not take a life. The third option, do nothing and lose your life. There's no other job in this world where in just seconds you can make those three decisions. In just seconds, you have to make those three decisions. So yeah, I agree. There's no magic wand to policing. But don't be a hypocrite about it and then demand your police chief to resign because of a shooting by one of her officers. Let's be realistic. There's going to always be shootings when dealing with police, whether the person is unarmed, which doesn't necessarily mean they're not a threat, or whether they're armed. There's going to be police shootings because Eventually, at some point, police, in those split seconds where they have to make three decisions, in those split seconds, they're going to rationalize to themselves that at that exact moment, they had to use deadly force. So I really don't get why departments, when things like this happen, demand the police chief resign or Fire the police chief. I, I don't get that because all you're going to do is you're going to bring in another one. It's going to happen. Then on to the next one. It's going to happen. Then on to the next one. It's going to happen. I don't know if it's because this case is international. Because going back to what I said earlier at the barbershop and no one had heard of this. Well, no black people because I've asked a few black people and they're like, nah, I didn't know anything about it. But. The other names that I can go on and on about, the other white females that no one has heard about, I don't even remember seeing a news story on it. So for it to make Fox News and even CNN for maybe five minutes because it didn't fit their agenda of the white cop and the 
black person and the racist. So they only did like a five minute package on it. But anyway, was this police chief forced to resign because of the international implications? Because there's a lot of people in Australia where Justine is from that are demanding justice and they're riding this person and people are flying in to demand justice. So there's a whole lot of international intrigue to this case. And then couple on the fact that the officer is Somalian who moved from Somalia when he was maybe 12 years old. And maybe there's another angle of that that we don't even realize. So let's think about this for a second. He's 31 years old. He moves here at a very young age. Let's not forget that U.S. troops were there in 93 and 94. I know because the 10th Mountain was there, and I know because I was with the 10th Mountain. And let's be honest, Somalia was a pretty war-torn country around that time. Could it be, and I'm not making excuses, I'm just thinking logically, could it be that Officer Mohammed Noor suffered from PTSD and no one knew about it? Because there's not a questionnaire on a police form that says, hey, do you suffer from PTSD? And there's no certain look to anyone that has PTSD. You can't just go in a room and look at people and say, yep, they've got PTSD and they may overreact to certain noises or yep, they've got PTSD and they may run at certain noises. I have PTSD, but people don't know it, but I still jump and twitch at certain sounds as well. So it could be that aspect of it. There's a lot to this case that we just don't know about yet. And I'm curious to see how it's going to play out in a court of law. I'm really a little bothered by Officer Noor refusing to talk to investigators. I understand going through your attorney. But at some point, you start to look a little guilty when you don't want to talk to investigators. That's just my opinion. But I'm curious to see where this goes. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens in the city of Minneapolis. Of course, we really didn't see BLM up there because, again, it didn't fit their agenda. But, you know, had the roles been reversed, we would still be hearing about this for hours on other networks, CNN. Um because it would fit the agenda of racist cop, black suspect. But I've said time and time again, this type of stuff doesn't just happen to black people, and it doesn't just happen in the black community. And if this doesn't prove it, I don't know what will. And and please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying a female can't be a threat to police I've come across my fair share that wanted to fight, that had weapons, who had guns. Not saying females can't be a threat to police. I'm just saying I'm trying to rationalize where Officer Noor believed there was a threat against his life or his partner's life by Justine Damon. And with that, I want to segue to the 10-7 segment. It's that time of the show because we're out of time. And I want to spotlight a Minneapolis police officer, police officer, Melissa Jane Smith, Minneapolis Police Department, end of watch, Thursday, August 1st, 2002. 
Officer Melissa Smith was shot and killed after she and her partner responded to a call shortly after 7 p.m. reporting a woman with a gun at a public housing complex. Goes to what I just said. I know women can be a threat to police. Contact was made with the 60-year-old female suspect, and while the officers were questioning her, she said she needed to go to the bathroom. Officer Smith escorted the woman to the public restroom in the lobby of the building. While in the restroom, the woman produced a handgun and opened fire, striking Officer Smith in the abdomen below her vest. Officer Smith was able to return fire and kill the suspect. Officer Smith had served with the Minneapolis Police Department for over six years, assigned to the public housing unit. She had previously served with the United States Marine Corps and Okinawa, Japan, and the U.S. Foreign Interest Section in Havana, Cuba, as a Marine security guard. Officer Smith was survived by her parents and her brother. Godspeed to her. I know this was 15 years ago, but I thank her for her service. But I did want to make a point. Again, I know females can be a threat to police. We all know that. We just need to be able to articulate that that threat is real, that that threat is imminent, and that deadly force was the only resort that the officer could use. I thank you for listening. Please leave your comments at Vincent Hill TV on Twitter, and I will see you next week right here, RadioInfluence.com. Good night. To continue the conversation, get updates on the show, and to find out when you can see him on television, follow Vincent on Twitter, at Vincent Hill TV. That's at Vincent Hill TV. This has been Beyond the Badge on Radio Influence. This is an Ian Beckles Flavor in Your Ear Quick Fix on Radio Influence. President Trump, speaking of couth, he didn't say the word couth before. Uh, he went, he went and met the uh, lead, uh, the, all the France muckety mucks, and uh, he runs into I don't know was it the president of France? I don't know who that. I know it's the French dude, his wife, and I don't know where you're from, but he looks at her and he got eyeballs her, and he says, "You're in good shape. You look good." And I'm thinking. Dude, first of all, you're talking out loud. Second of all, you're the president of the United States. You got to have, I mean, come on, man. It's, it's not disrespectful, but it's not respectful. You know, out of, you meet a woman and that's the only thing you have. You may think it in your mind. That's fine. Sometimes I think things in my mind that don't come out, but don't let it all come out, Donald. Like Donald's not able to keep anything in whatsoever, but I mean nothing. And, you know, I know, I know people can continue to, to defend the guy, but he, you know, you know, look at, they're talking about around the world, you know, the love for the United States, the trusts in the United States is plummeting. And they're showing different countries. Some countries are down 70% of trust in the United States. I mean, why would, why would you trust the United States right now when all we do is lie? That's it. And, you know, I keep on hearing, Oh yeah, Trump didn't meet, didn't meet. Oh yeah, we did meet. We did meet, but this is what we talked. Who cares anymore? Whatever comes out your mouth is a lie anyways. So who cares what you guys are thinking? And I guess the trust of the United States has plummeted every, up to 
and there was two countries that it, it elevated. I don't remember the other one, but one was Russia, and it's up 42%. So we're good. So our enemy likes us now, and uh, that's because we're doing everything that they want us to do, pretty much. And I'm not sure that we're not just dangling up and down like 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 little uh, puppies. You can find Ian Beckles' Flavor in Your Ear on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and RadioInfluence.com.